podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. How's your fantasy team doing, mate? Oh, I haven't sat here in ages. Everyone's bored of it by the stages of the season, now, aren't they? That's enough out of you, you whiny limey. That's soccer, not football. And this is Paddy Power's NFL Fantasy. Running on just the 6 p.m. games, it's only a game week long. No season-long boredom, no excuses, and 750 pounds in prizes guaranteed each week. Paddy Power Fantasy. Hate waiting, love winning. Paddy Power Fantasy rules apply. 18 Hello and welcome to the Nat Coombs Show presented by Paddy Power Fantasy. This is our Christmas special. I hope you're enjoying the turkey, the mulled wine and the copious amounts of dessert wine that I might recommend that you drank on our previous Christmas show earlier on this week. It is a special show we're dropping for you today. Normal business resumes Friday the 27th. That is our week 17 preview show with me and Tom Deacon in the house. But we've lined up some interviews for you from earlier on in the year that Iron Mike did. Firstly, with the great Bengals quarterback, Ken Anderson. And then later on in this episode, you'll hear from Iron Mike chatting with Tory Holt. They were both over, of course, for the London games earlier on this season. And Mike got some sit-down quality time with both of them. They're terrific interviews. Enjoy them. Leading off with Ken Anderson. Hi, Ken. Well, Hi. Welcome to London. Yeah. It's um, it's a fascinating story that you have, and I, I was looking back, and I, I hadn't realized, but Batavia, Illinois, and then Augustana, which is small Division three college in Illinois, and then you're drafted in the third round. I can't think of any player in the NFL history from a Division three school who gets drafted in the third round of the draft. Yeah, well, it was kind of funny. I mean, I, I think, you know, I'd had some good statistics in my career, so I was on a lot of teams' radar. And I, I think the story goes that Pete Brown, Paul Brown's son, was at a Notre Dame game uh, one Saturday afternoon and saw that I was playing against Valparaiso in Indiana uh, that night. So he drove over. That was the first time the Bengals kind of laid eyes on me and liked what they saw. Then Mike Brown actually came out to Augustana to watch me play. And in those days, when the draft was in January, the coaches went out and scouted on the weekends. Right. So I was playing... a against Carroll College in Waukesha, Wisconsin, and Bill Walsh shows up to watch me play that day. So then he came out and, and worked me out afterwards. I, I thought I'd get a, a chance, but I, I didn't know I'd get drafted in the third round. Yeah. And, and one of the interesting things which I hadn't known was that you were sort of like backyard to backyard with a guy called Dan Issel, who's a legend, uh, Kentucky basketball, the Kentucky Colonels of the ABA, Denver in the ABA, NBA. Uh, NBA Hall of Famer. NBA Hall of Famer. Yes. No, it was uh, quite a, a way to grow up. We had some great games in the back there. Must have been some high school. Well, it, well you know, it, it, in a small school, and we were a, a small farm town, basically, at that time. And sometimes, you know, the, the athletics go in cycles. You kind of get that good group, and, and we had a, a good group of guys for a, a few years, and uh, we were very good in basketball, obviously, but Dan was a pretty good tight end. Uh, in football, we all played baseball together, and uh, you didn't have to specialize in a sport right. in, in those days. And and, and I always kind of you know tell kids, I, I think you know playing basketball helped my my footwork for playing football, and you know hand eye coordination in baseball. I was a catcher, 
And I always said, you know, I, I got a good relief throwing a football because I got used to throwing over the top, you know, throwing runners out at second base so the ball wouldn't tail off. So I, I think, you know, all the sports kind of complemented each other, and I almost feel bad for kids nowadays that they, they have to specialize early. Now, you mentioned Dan Issel's in the Basketball Hall of Fame, and, of course, whenever Hall of Fame conversations come up, you're one of the names that's always mentioned as one of the most deserving guys who's not in the Hall of Fame. And certainly, I was looking at the list of quarterbacks, and you'd be at the top of my list of quarterbacks who aren't in the Hall of Fame. What do you attribute that to? Well, you know, I don't know. Uh, Obviously, (laughs) a lot of people thought that I I shouldn't be in. But I I think, you know, the one position uh, where they really look at, did you win a world championship, is quarterback. You know, I don't think that's a factor in some of the other positions. And, and, and we didn't win. I had one chance in a, to play in a Super Bowl, and, and we got, you know, beat by the San Francisco 49ers. And, unfortunately, we turned the ball over five times. And although we had more yards and more passing yards and more touchdowns, uh, you can't turn the ball over and win a big game. Well, you mentioned that. Um, if I remember right, you were down 20 nothing at the half. You, you came back and lost 26-21. Correct. Dan Ross had a big game. Chris Collinsworth had a big yep. game in that one. But the week or the week or two weeks before that, whatever it was, you had the freeze bowl um, where you beat the Chargers in, in what was an amazing football game, a legendary football yeah. game. Well, you know, it was, uh, we always say it's the coldest game in NFL history. And although it was only about nine or 10 degrees below zero on the thermometer, we had winds up to 30 miles an hour. So the wind chill was 59 below. And, uh, you know, it kind of made, a tough time throwing the football and that that uh, that amount of wind and you know we were playing against another high-powered offense and you know Dan Fouts and the San Diego Chargers and Eric Coriel and you know it was a cold day and we we uh, we came out on top and you know they turned the ball over and we didn't under those conditions and and we win the game. I probably should mention too you were the MVP of the NFL in that '81 season, which is another another good argument uh, and. Your passing career sets a couple of records. The completion percentage back in the days when 60% completions were unusual, and you were at 70 one year, which stood till mm-hmm. Drew Brees broke it like 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was a, a different era. You know, I came in in, uh, in the early 70s, and, and during that era, if you look at quarterbacks, and, you know, if you threw for 2,400 yards, you probably led the league in yards, and if you were uh, was a one-to-one touchdown-to-interception ratio, that was acceptable in those days and everybody threw about 50 percent completion percentage and uh you know we happen to have a coach named bill walsh who started this offense how it got to become the west coast offense i don't know because it started under the 8th street viaduct in cincinnati (laughs) when he kind of came up with it and uh and we ran it very successfully where we kind of used the whole field not only vertically but horizontally uh we were willing to to throw it to the running backs we weren't going to uh, turn the ball over, so all of a sudden I'm completing, you know, 63% of your passes, and, you know, touchdown to interceptions is about, you know, three or four to one. And so it was kind of a little bit of a revolutionary offense at that point in time. And, you know, I, I think there's some guy named Montana and, and another guy named Young that ran it pretty well out in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah well, you've jumped my next three or four questions with, with those, but Bill Walsh was your coordinator, quarterback coach um, for five years, and that offense was originally designed um, for a downfield quarterback, uh, Greg Cook, who injury killed his career, and then Virgil Carter came in without the arm. And in my mind, a lot of people sort of associate you with a short passing kind of offense, but to me, you mentioned Joe Montana, you're sort of the prototype Joe Montana. 
Well, you know, we had in 1973, we had this receiver named Isaac Curtis, who was as good as anybody that ever played wide receiver. And, and he was, you know, I would say he was a football player with world-class speed. You know, he wasn't a, a sprinter that tried to play football. He was a football player that was really fast. And we got the ball down the field. And then in 75, we had Charlie Joyner on the other side before we traded the, the Sanford or uh, the, the Chargers. And uh, Charlie's a Hall of Famer. So, and, and a guy named Bob Trumpy, who was, I always say, he was Rob, Gon- Rob Gronkowski before Gronkowski, where you could split him out and w- run wide receiver routes with him. So we had a lot of weapons. And, you know, and I think if you look at my yards per attempt, it's about the same as Dan Marino. Uh, and I don't think anybody thinks Dan Marino was a dink and dunk quarterback. <laughs> That's right. A couple of best years mm-hmm. are over eight, mm-hmm. and no rate is. Fantastic. And you were talking about baseball and basketball and, and, you know, your throwing motion, your footwork. That was all the, the key to Bill Walsh's quarterback play. It was, it was all about footwork and, and getting your body in the right position. Well, you know, it was kind of the first time that you, you, you timed up the quarterback's drop with the depth of the wide receiver. And, and, and I remember when, when Bill got a hold of me, it was like taking this piece of clay and molding it into the quarterback that you wanted. And, and coming from a di- Division three school, we weren't very sophisticated. And, you know, I ran a lot of options. And, you know, I think I was bigger than most of our offensive linemen. And <laughs> the only reason I didn't play offensive line is because I could probably throw it. But, you know, we would literally spend weeks just walking in place to get the feel for the timing. Okay, this is three and throw. And you know, hit that third step and it comes out. Okay, now we're going to take a big three and pause. We got a little bit deeper route. And then five no hitch, five and a hitch, a quick seven. Uh, you know, a deep seven step drop if we're throwing something down the field. And then after walking in place, the next week we would walk through it and then we would jog. But it was a month before we even started going any, anything full speed with receivers. But I think that was the, the kind of the attention to detail that Bill had in his offense. And, you know, and, and why we were successful in throwing a, a large, you know, high percentage of passes is because when, when the quarterback was ready to throw, the receiver was coming open. Now, the story goes that Paul Brown had promised that Bill would become the head coach when he stepped down, and then Bob Johnson got the job. How much different do you think your career and the Bengals' uh, success might have been if, if Walsh had stayed? Boy, that, that's hard to tell, and, and it's, you know, it's easy to look back on, and, and, and Bill, I know, was disappointed he didn't get the head coaching job. But, you know, I, I must say that at, at that moment in time, I thought Bill Johnson, who was a tremendous coach in his own right, uh, was a, an offensive line coach, was a tremendous player, center for the, the uh, 49ers, who was on the all-decades team. Uh, uh, you know, I thought he was more ready to be a head coach. And I think if we could have talked Bill into, into staying for another year or so, we, we might have continued offensively. But you know, Bill went to San Diego with the Chargers for a year with Dan Fouts and, you know, eventually to, to Stanford before he went to the, the 49ers. Uh, you know, it looks pretty bad that we didn't keep him, you know, then, but, uh, you know, it, was, it made more sense. Yeah, he, yeah, correct. Yeah. And, um, and then you had another great offensive lineman, obviously, as your head coach in Forrest Craig. Well, yeah, I, and I think that, the, you know, my career kind of went up and then all of a sudden I'm not very good in, in 1979 and, and then in, in 1980, we got this guy named Munoz, you know, <laughs> at left tackle and happened to be a, a, becoming a Hall of Fame. And it's amazing when I had Munoz and then we had Max Montoya with an, another big guard next to him from UCLA. And we had a number one draft choice. Blair Bush was our center and Dave Lapham at right guard and Michael's. Our line got good. It's amazing. I became another pretty good quarterback again. And we still had Isaac Curtis and got this other 
this other kid named Collinsworth is turned into a pretty good broadcaster in, in his own right. And, you know, and we became a, another good offensive team and, and had a chance to go to a Super Bowl. I was looking at the stats from that Super Bowl, and Isaac Curtis didn't have a big day. Was that part of San Francisco's plan, was to take Isaac Curtis away and, and try to make you beat him, beat them with other players? Well, you know, I, I think so. And, you know, Chris Collinsworth had a pretty good day, although, you know, I had an interception early that was costly, and then we come right back, and Chris had a fumble uh, deep down in their territory that was costly. Um, but, you know, Dan Ross set a Super Bowl record that right. day, uh, and I think he might still be tied for that, uh, for most receptions in a game. But we were a pretty dynamic offense, and, and, and so was the 49ers. And, you know, we'd played them earlier in the year, and I'd, I'd heard a foot, and I didn't went out in the, the first quarter, and they beat us in Cincinnati. But, uh, you know, two evenly matched teams, two very good teams. It was kind of funny because I think the year before we were both like 6-10. and 10. And nobody picked us at the beginning of the year in, in 81 to go to the Super Bowl. And here are two 6-10 and 10 teams that, that totally turned it around. And, you know, and it's unfortunate that you play in the, the, the biggest game. And, you know, we had five turnovers in that game. And you're not going to win any game, let alone the Super Bowl, turning the ball over that many times. And, and then I looked at your coaching career. And you actually had a lot of success, um, even as a wide receivers coach in Jacksonville. But I noticed, too, you were quarterbacks coach in Pittsburgh under Bruce Arians when, when Ben Roethlisberger came in. No, that was a fun, you know, a fun time in my life. Uh, we, people said, you're a Bengal. How could you go to Pittsburgh? And I said, I, you know, I, I, was, I, I didn't ask to leave Cincinnati. Um, but I got to go there with Mike Tomlin's first staff, and, and Coach Tomlin was great to work for. And, you know, we all know what Bruce Arians has done, you know, offensively. And, and, and Ben Roethlisberger is such a great quarterback, you know, still is today. And uh, to have a chance to, to go to a Super Bowl and win one uh, was always a special moment. And it was interesting, too, the way you, you held him back sort of in, in his first year or so, didn't let him throw a whole lot of passes, you know, concentrated on the ground. And then each year he sort of was getting better and better. Well, you know, uh, Bruce had been with him, you know, years before that, uh, as the receiver coach, I believe, and he stayed there with with Coach Tomlin. And you know, one of the things that he wanted was to Ben for Ben to take charge of the offense. You know, a lot, he was a young quarterback before, and you know, geez, you know, he goes in as a rookie, and I don't know if he actually knew what he was doing, but wins about twelve or thirteen games in a row. It seems like, and it already won a Super Bowl. But you know, Bruce wanted him to to control the offense, and uh, he became the key cog for us. Bruce Arians, it's interesting this year because one of the big topics in, in football is always the lack of quality quarterbacks. And, and Bruce Arians goes into Tampa Bay as a kind of quote-unquote quarterback whisperer uh-huh. to try to help Jameis Winston, you know, in, in his fifth year in the league to, to come over. How, how do you look at that kind of a project? You know, can you do enough to turn a quarterback around? Well, I think it's got to be a, a team effort down there with him. And, and I know his offensive coordinator is Byron Leftwich, who I coached. Uh, he was our number one draft choice uh, in Jacksonville when I w- was down there. Um, he's also got another great mentor in Tom Moore who uh, I got to know when he was, uh, you know, coaching with the Pittsburgh Steelers back in the 70s. And I think he's got two or three Super Bowl rings with them. And he happened to coach some guy named Manning in Indianapolis for about 12 years. And that guy turned out pretty good. So uh, I know one thing, Jameis is going to get great coaching down there. Yeah. And, do, I mean, do, do you think it's, a, it's simply that 
there are different systems coming out of college and the NFL or that um, the, the way the league has progressed makes it more difficult for quarterbacks uh, to succeed? Or, you know, is there really a shortage of quality quarterbacking? Well, you know, I, I think sometimes if, if you look at teams uh, and if they were brutally honest, about 50% of them would rather have a better starting quarterback than they have. About 75% would rather have a better backup than they have. Everybody would have a right to have a better third quarterback than they have, and that they, they, they just they're, they're not around. And you know, and, and I think uh, the, these guys in, in college now are, are doing so much more with the, the full field and the read options and doing that. And and I think uh, some of these guys, the NFL is now tailoring their offenses to a certain extent. Uh, I know even Andy Dalton runs some of the the run pass option stuff. So uh, I, I think the guys are more ready, and, and I think it looks like we've got a. A new wave coming up. Uh, you know, you got to love what Patrick Mahomes is, is doing, you know, uh, there. And Jared Goff, uh, you know, all of a sudden, you know, when they kind of change that offensive style out with the Rams, is, is doing well. Russell Wilson, everybody thought, well, geez, you know, he's too short to play quarterback in the NFL. I mean, my gosh, he was at North Carolina State, finished up at Wisconsin, and I don't know if anybody's playing the position any better than him right no, now. I don't think they were watching enough game film. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there was a there was a quote um, from um, Mike um, Mike. There was a quote from the Washington State coach. <laughs> Mike Leach. Mike Leach. Sorry, there was a quote from him about Gardner Minshew. Uh, he said that guys were calling him up. And saying, "Can he throw the long, the deep ball? You know, is he mobile? Does he read the field?" And, and Leach's first question back to them was, "Did you watch our game film? Yeah. You know, can't you tell yeah. that yourself?" And I, I think we do tend to look nowadays at at the measurements, the measurables, mm-hmm. the combine, all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff, and maybe not enough at, at how a guy plays the game. Well, you know, I always thought as a coach, and, and I think the game's probably has passed me by. I've been out of coaching now for for ten years, but. One of the things that I always looked at was a quarterback accurate. You know, I, I think, you know, I always go back to, to Sonny Jurgensen back in the day. Sonny could have his arm at any angle and he was going to throw the ball from here to there and know where it was going. Uh, Sonny was a naturally accurate guy. And, uh, I think it's tough to make a quarterback that's a, maybe a 50% passer in college to think that he's going to get up to 65%. Uh, I think the other thing that you look at is throwing mechanics. Uh, that by the time a guy gets in the NFL, he's been throwing that way for so long that it, it's tough to change the way that he throws. And I think a lot of the other things as far as the, the footwork and the offense, you can go ahead and train a guy to do. But I think, you know, accuracy and, and, and our arm position are, are two things that, that's tough to change. It's funny how the NFL coaches who argue against the shorter uh, preseason period and the shorter training camp period are all the ones who do the most coaching and, and they want to have the extra time to coach those guys. Well, you know, it's uh, I don't know how they do it today. Training camp is shorter. Uh, I remember getting ready, okay, you know, here's our offense, here's how many reps that we're going to get, here's how many reps the starter's going to get, how many reps the backup's going to get, how many times we're going to rep a play, and you know, I'm used to, well, every day's uh, two-a-day, and every two-a-day is, is in pads, and now you're you know, one practice a day, and you get one walk through a day, and and with the condensed uh, nature of training camp, it's uh, it's tough to get not only your starters ready, but your backups. Brilliant stuff from Iron Mike, but there's more where that came from. Tory Holt, one of the greats, sat down with Iron Mike as well. Here's the chat. Welcome to London, Tori. Yeah. I gotta say that you have a reputation that you don't have to live up to, but in the early years of this century, 
on our late night Channel 5 games when we would do Monday night football. We would do the highlights of the Sunday night games, short edits, and I would voice them over, and then we'd have a statistics card at the end. And so with the Rams in those days, your name always came yeah. up because you were always either making a play or, ma- or making a lot of them, and you were the Tory you can support. Oh, wow. Like Reggie Bush was the Bush you can support. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so... You became kind of like my trademark. That's <laughs> I, awesome. I owe you. I owe you a lot for those <laughs> first you. five years. I appreciate that. Um, but you know, I, I just like to really start in on your rookie season, uh, '99, with, with the Rams and and the sort of the beginning of the greatest show on turf. Um, and that must have been for a receiver who had come out of a college without you know a lot of winning success yeah. on the on the team. It must have been a, a huge experience for you. It was. It was a great experience. It was something that you know when I was in college. Uh, you know, we didn't win a ton of games. We never played for a national championship. We did go to a few bowl games, but never to the to the level of what it was my rookie year in, in St. Louis with the Rams. And it felt good to be a part of a of a winning team, of uh, be a part of an organization uh, that was known for winning. Um, and uh, and I wanted, you know, I wanted that to continue. Um, I got out to a great start winning Super Bowl in my rookie year, so I was like, okay, this is what it's going to be like every single year for me uh, in my career. But but to answer your question, yeah, it was just good to be affiliated with a great team, a winning organization, uh, and it kind of set the tone for my career. And yeah, and at the peak, that wasn't even the peak of that offense, really. I mean, because at one point when you've got you and, and Bruce and Oz Hakeem and, of course, Marshall Falk coming out of the backfield, it's almost the... It's partly building off the old Chargers and kind of Air Coryell stuff, but it's also the prototype for a lot of offenses nowadays where you could attack teams on multiple levels yeah. with multiple receivers. Correct, and Coach Marsh was phenomenal with that. I mean, he was, uh, I mean, the, 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 the schemes and the design of plays that he would come up just blew our minds. But we also were a talented group, too, where we gave, we, we allowed for him, you know, we, we allowed for him to have that type of flexibility to create those kind of plays. Not only to create them, but to call them, right. to have the confidence to call them, because we were able to execute those plays. But you mentioned Eric Coriel and, and that group, and Coach March studied under Coach Coriel. Coriel would come out to practice. Oh, really? Sometimes in St. Louis to see us play, and 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 he must have thought he died and gone to hell. Right. Well, those are some of our better practices because we respected him and his offense so much that we wanted to. You know, make sure that we were sharp in practice those days that he was there. Make sure that there was no balls on the grounds. Make sure those shifts and those motions were correct and detailed and exact. So, shouts out to Coach Coriel for his influence on us as Rams. It's the greatest show on tour, but not only us, but the entire National Football League in terms of offensive football. Um, and Coach Mars, like I said, picked up from that and kind of added his mix to it, his his own flavor. And uh, the playbook just kept expanding, 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 expanding each year. But Coach Martz was in the lab dialing it up, and then we were out on the field working and putting ourselves in position to make sure the offense ran it. Another reason why we loved that St. Louis team was the NFL Europe World League connection. You had Kurt Warner, obviously, but but also Andy McCollum and Tom Newton up front who had both played in Europe and come up the hard way. Yeah, you know, Kurt Kurt Warner's skill set from the Arena League was perfect. Arena and World League was was perfect for our system. It It was about anticipation. Um, it was quick. It was fast. About timing. So Kurt was outstanding. Andy McCullum played guard and center for us. Very unselfish, tough football player. And then Tommy Newton, when we would score touchdowns, you could see Tommy coming streaming down the field just to make sure that he could get into the end zone for the celebration. I mean, that's the kind of fun, the unselfishness that we had with our offensive line. But our offensive line allowed us to do a lot 
with that offense. So big shouts out to that offensive line for giving Kurt the time, giving Marshall the running lanes to do the things that he wanted to do. Um, and then for us on the perimeter, we had the time to get our depths, to run our double moves, and to get our routes uh, ran correctly because of the offensive line. Of course, you also had Orlando Pace oh, on yeah. that line. And I was talking to Kenny Anderson before and, and asking him about his quarterback. He said, well, it's a lot easier when you got Anthony Munoz on yes. left tackle. Same with you guys in Orlando. Well, you know, I, was, I played the X position, so I was on the line of scrimmage to the left. So I saw Orlando every single snap just manhandling guys. Uh, but Orlando was a tremendous talent. He anchored that offensive line. He protect Kurt and those those quarterbacks blind side. And again, allowed for us to do the things that we did down the field as receivers. Uh, but Orlando Pace was a tremendous, uh, tremendous asset to what we did offensively, anchoring that offensive line. Now you've got a tremendous statistical resume. Um, eight years over over 1,100 yards, yeah. six over 1,300, uh, eight years of 80 catchers or more. But a couple of years really stand out to me. The next year, 2,000, you're averaging just under 20 yards a catch for the whole season. Yeah. And then um, 2003, 117 catches and 12 touchdowns. I mean, that's just phenomenal production. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was in a, I was in a system, in an offensive system that highlighted my skill sets. Uh, Coach Martz, again, did a really good job of, uh, putting his players in positions to to succeed, and I was a guy that could run. I could run routes. I had run after the catch. I had really good hands. Uh, so um, you know, he put me in a in a great position. And then you know, Kurt and the quarterbacks did a good job of finding me. But you know, having Isaac opposite of me, who draw drew double teams, allowed me to get some one on one situations. And sometimes I would draw double teams, and he would get one on one situations. And then we had Oz, I came, and then Ricky Prohl, and tight end Ernie Conwell and Roller Williams. So that was Marshall Falk in the backfield. So there was a lot of players that you had to pay attention to, which allowed me to kind of go unknown sometimes to get those big chunks of yards, those 19, 18, 20 yards a pop type catches. Um, so very, very, very thankful uh, to be able to play amongst those guys. But I also knew that I had to take care of my business, make sure that my skill sets and my details is on par as well. And, of course, that brings up the inevitable Hall of Fame question because Marshall Falk went in the Hall of Fame. Um, You and Isaac and Kurt Warner uh, and Orlando all retired the same year. Orlando and and Kurt Warner are in the Hall of Fame. You and and Isaac aren't. And a lot of people, when we make up lists of best wide receivers who aren't in the Hall of Fame, you're at or near the top of that list. You know, what do you think? Do you think eventually you're going to get in? I'm hoping so. You know what? I'm, 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 um, I'm... Leaning on my faith that things will, will happen the right way. Um, uh, got trust in the voters that they'll, that they'll see it correctly, hopefully one day, and, uh, and I'll be in to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But my work's done, man. I, and I played, the, I played the game. I felt like I played the game the right way. I played hard. Um, I respected the game. Um, my numbers kind of speak for themselves. I'm on the all-decade team. I'm out of – there's four guys, of, and you're the only one. That's I'm the only one that's not in. T.O. Moss and and Marvin Harrison. We were all part of the All Decade team of the 2000s. I'm the only one in that list that's not in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So hopefully, you know, at some point in time, the the voters will get it get it right and will will vote me into the. There's that problem with pairs of receivers. You know, Stallworth, going back to Lynn Swan yeah. and Stallworth, and, you know, um, you've got Isaac, you've yeah. got um, Reggie Wayne and, yeah. and Marvin. And Marvin Harrison. Harrison. Well, you and Isaac, obviously. Well, Isaac, Isaac and I were, we were 1A and 1A. It wasn't a 1A and a 1B. We were 1As and 1As. Um, and, uh, and I'm thankful for that, uh, for sure. And I, and I, and I, and you, if you follow me on social media, you constantly, say constantly, but you've heard me say 
several times that Isaac and I were the best duo now all that's, time. That's <laughs> and that's a, I know, and, yeah. and there's a lot of great duo receivers. Um, but I feel that confident in my ability and Isaac's ability that we were the best duo of all time in the National Football League. And of course, the other problem is that passing is such you know has grown and grown and grown in oh, the yeah. NFL, and now the numbers. You know, if you look at older receivers, people say, "Well, he only had sixty catches or eight hundred yards away." In, in an era where that yeah. was unusual, nowadays everybody's getting a hundred yards, a hundred catches, thousand yard seasons. Well, that's the norm now. I mean, yeah. the ball is being thrown all over the yard now. Uh, the spread offenses, um, so those numbers are going to continue to just mount up. Um, again, in the area in which we played, um, you know, there was a it was balanced, and it's balanced now, but. Uh, maybe not looked at as much in terms of passing. Because some of the things that we were doing, some of the commentators and some of the pundits were like, what in the world is this? Like, why are they throwing the ball so much? Uh, why aren't they running it with a guy like Marshall Falk in the backfield? Why aren't they running the football? But well, Coach Martz believed in throwing the football. Uh, he had the talent on the outside, and that's what we did. I look at the Rams today, and if Todd Gurley isn't 100% of Todd Gurley, he's the Marshall Falk of that team. And when I'm looking at him, I'm thinking he, he doesn't seem to be at full at full pace uh, like he was, you know, at his peak. And the Rams offense seems to suffer as a result. Yeah, well, you I mean, you definitely can see a change in the offense. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with, with Gurley and um, the amount of reps that he's getting. Because when he's in there, and we've seen in the past, when he's in there, he's really good running it as well as catching the ball out of the backfield. But when he's healthy, they're rolling. And obviously they have him on, a, on somewhat of a pitch count now, so they got to be smart with him. Uh, that's why Henderson and Brown and those other guys have to pick up the slack in right. terms of the run game and making sure that we stay on schedule offensively. Because when they're balanced, they are really, really good because it's help, it helps set up their play-action pass, which we know the Rams thrive with that. That was amazing over-the-shoulder catch that he oh, made. Yeah. <laughs> and a beautiful ball by yeah. golf. You know, to yeah. put that over the shoulder, away from the defender, again, just showing you, golf showing you how talented he is, and he still has room for improvement. That's the thing that I like about this young Rams football team is they got a lot of young players with much more room for improvement. And they've got three receivers you have to account oh, yeah. for. How would you like to move in and play in that offense? Oh, my gosh. It'd be great. Because, again, who, who are you going to – it's, it's, it's kind of like when we were playing with the greatest show, like who are you going to take away in the offense? Do you take away Cup, then Cooks will hurt you. You take away Cooks, then Cup will hurt you. You take away Cup and Cooks, then Woods will hurt you. So it's kind of like pick your poison with these with these guys. But they're all unselfish. They celebrate each other's success. And they're all different. Cooks is a speed guy. Well, Robert Woods does everything for them offensively. And then you have the, 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 the guy in Cooper Cup who's, who does a little bit of everything as well. He's so crafty, so detailed, so skilled, uh, very productive football player. And all of those three of those guys give you something different every single down. It's funny because during the Super Bowl last year, we were we were saying, and Cup wasn't there, obviously. Why aren't they going to two tight ends? You know, why aren't they trying to change New England's defense by putting them? And this year, we're seeing those yeah, tight ends out. start to contribute. And that when that starts clicking, that offense is going to be. It opens it up. It opens the offense up even more. And and and, and credit Coach McVay for uh, understanding the the changes that needed to be done, and then implementing them, and then having the trust in the guys to go out and do it, and calling their number and getting in the football, and now you're seeing the offense. Now you have to stop Gurley. You have to stop three wide receivers. Now you have to stop Higby. You have to stop Everett. So there's a lot of offense that you have to cover when you come up against the, against the L.A. Rams because they are that good, and each guy on all levels can beat you.
Well, thanks. Thanks a lot. Good, good luck, and thanks. good luck with the Hall of Fame. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> Lovely stuff. Hope you enjoyed it, uh, and uh, we are back, as I say, Friday the twenty seventh for our Week Seventeen preview. Me and the Deeks in the ESPN house getting you set for the final week of the regular season. I'm going all misty-eyed here. Hope you've had a cracking Christmas. Don't overindulge. Well, actually, actually did the opposite and overindulge. Uh, that is important, people. Enjoy, and we'll see you Friday. Bye for now. Sports Social Podcast Network.